Welcome everyone, this is All About Windows Phone Insight Podcast 247, recording this on the 7th of March 2018. I'm Steve Litchfield, with a slightly croaky throat, but doubtless I'll manage with the help of Rafe Blanford. Yes, yeah, so we'll have to make sure I do uh, plenty of talking to save Steve's throat, although I suspect a few topics he's going to have to cover, but as usual we'll be chatting all about kind of phone things related to Windows and meandering onto other mobile topics and usings. Yes, the concept of uh, you doing lots of talking on the podcast will be novel to people. But no, no, no. <laughs> no you, 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 this is where you get to have your say, Rafe, and we're very grateful <laughs> for that. Um, first story, the I've been busy redirecting and reorganizing our directory, Rafe. Now, people may remember back in the midst of time, we had a kind of a software scraped uh, version of the main Microsoft Windows phone store. And that all fell by the wayside when Microsoft reorganized things. So I took the bull by the horns and compiled my own whitelisted, curated best applications and best games, helped by our wonderful readership. Um, and this gradually grew into kind of a two-headed monster because you had all the Windows Phone 8.1 Silverlight apps and games. And then you had the new modern Windows 10 Universal Windows Platform apps. Um, and people were, I don't think people very much like me, if they've got a Windows 10 phone, they really want to run UWP apps because the old Silverlight apps, while they do still run, Rafe, I think I think they come up and they just kind of jar when they appear on screen. You think, this? hang on a minute, I've been taken out of my nice, beautiful, symmetric, wonderfully uh, designed Windows 10 experience into something from a couple of years before. And although people loved 8.1 for what it was, and it worked very well as a one-handed interface, we covered this in last week's podcast with Steve Heinrich. In fact, we've, we're kind of progressing to larger screen phones, to a two-handed interface, and also a commonality of the, this UWP design between the the phone and the tablet and Surface and laptop and desktop. So basically, I wanted to split out all the UWP apps. We now have a proper curated UWP app directory, and even better, because there aren't hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them were actually able to squeeze it all onto one page in our CMS. So hopefully people can now just have one URL to bookmark rather than two, and hopefully we can move on and with this Windows 10 app directory. Yes, I guess I'll have to have just have the curmudgeonly remark to start with that I was rather fond of kind of the Metro design language around 8.1 and its its simplicity. Um, I recognise that you have to move with the times, uh, but I think there was a certain appeal for it, particularly on smartphone devices and uh, I remember people talking about it you know later on in its life that it was kind of like a, a feature phone like smartphone OS and it wasn't entirely yeah. unreasonable to describe it that way and I think there are a lot of fans still of the kind of relative elegance and simplicity of it um, but yes obviously we've moved on and if you've got Windows 10 mobile on your device it feels very weird switching back to you know at the time it felt like it was kind of an evolution of the design language but actually as time has gone on the kind of differences have become more apparent or I guess have kind of flowed through uh, both the system and the apps and so yeah absolutely makes sense to kind of highlight the UWP apps also they're the ones that are likely to be better supported going forward and and not break if uh, uh, something is changed and so it, it's you know a great way to make that distinction the other thing that's worth saying is just how many apps there are actually in this directory now you know um, I haven't counted them all up, but it looks like it's well over 100. And, you know, when people talk about the app gap and not being able to do things on their Windows 10 mobile device, 
I am sympathetic and I, you know, no one's going to try and argue around that point. But it does show that if you have a specific task in mind, there's a good chance that there will be an app available where it sort of falls down is when you get to the service type apps for the on-demand things or for your bank or for whatever. Um, And that's where, you know, honestly, that's always where the app gap was. But nonetheless, particularly if you're kind of into the productivity stuff or you're looking for reference or news or, you know, even actually to some extent kind of third-party social applications, but certainly, you know, all the utility type stuff, actually the apps that you typically would find on Windows desktop and tablets, you know, there's some really, really great ones available for uh, Windows 10 mobile. And actually, I think we're going to talk about a couple of the newest ones later in the podcast. But yes, if you go to this page, this is the place where you can kind of get you know, Steve's personally curated list. And I think it, I'm <laughs> right in saying, Steve, that you basically tried every single one of these, at least in passing, uh, to kind of give it your stamp of approval, if you like. I've certainly given the majority my personal stamp of approval. In some cases, we do have some trusted readers who, when they recommend something, you think, OK, I'm going to take their word as gospel. It's not something in a genre I particularly want to try, but I they, they recommend it. I trust their word. And there are a few examples of that as well. But yes, the vast majority of there have not only been tried by me, uh, or at least installed by me, a lot of them have actually been reviewed or featured. And where possible, of course, I've just linked through to the full coverage on the site. So in at least half the cases in that directory, if not 70%, if you click through, Rafe, you'll come to one of my flow stories or one of my reviews, which hopefully is more useful than just a direct dump into the uh, Microsoft Windows Store. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, one of the things that still continues to surprise me when people are writing their entries for the App Store, they don't always give the detail that you want. Or more to the point, I think sometimes a third party opinion has a bit more validity to it because you're, you know, you're not spending time talking it up in, in marketing speak, which in the App Store, fair enough, you're going to do. So it just gives you that extra bit of information about whether it's going to do what you want it to do, whether it's worth downloading. So, yes, I think it's uh, I would say it's at least 75 percent of them have uh, a link through to the flow. Some of them will have a link through to reviews. But uh, when Steve writes a flow about UWP, we're not just talking a copy and paste from the App Store directory. It generally means you've tried it. You've got a couple of screenshots and offer up an opinion. So I think it's one of the most valuable resources on the site. Thank you. And uh, along with it, of course, the AAWP. Universal application has also been updated, and that, of course, has got a hierarchical a kind of pop-out list, really, of, of various directories, and that's now been reorganized to match. So hopefully the site and the application are in true sync. So uh, do go and grab that and update that if you haven't already. Um, just on the subject of Windows 8.1 versus Windows 10 Mobile, right, just a couple of comments. One uh, is that the, the appearance of hamburger menus, which, of course, we've debated over the years, and that's a very much something that came in with Windows 10, in fairness, along with uh, Windows 10 on the desktop, and in fact, for um, other mobile OSs, quite often, they've ended up with hamburger menus too. It's kind of a, a UI element of the modern age, really. So that that's kind of one new thing. And the second thing is that the, the, the Metro-like tabs that you used to love in Windows 8.1, they are still there in many Windows 10 apps. So, for example, if we go as a good example to the Vime, the ultimate Vimeo, Vimeo client, uh, UWP app, which I reviewed, uh, I think it was yesterday. Um, if you, once you're actually within, uh, uh, perhaps viewing a video, and it's you're in portrait mode, so you've got the video playing at the top, and then you've got various tabs underneath for, for example, you know, the, the comments, the description, and social stuff, and and you literally sideswipe between those while the video is playing. So, in great many Windows 10 UWP apps, 
the concept of side swiping the the, the 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 content on the screen to get to a new area of content a kind of a, like a pivot if you like that is still very much there even if you don't call it metro ui yeah that's true although i'm kind of sad that kind of the bigger fonts uh, and the size that you had there has kind of gone away i mean it kind of makes sense in terms of the, the screen size and while we're talking about burger menus i just i'm interested to hear your take on them are you a fan of burger menus or is it something you don't enjoy as a kind of ui element I don't mind it when they are genuine navigational aids. So, for example, if you've got an, uh, a, an application like AWP Universal, good example, most of your life is going to be spent browsing through stories, diving in and out, viewing comments, and you don't need to use that hamburger menu. It's there for when you want to jump to a different section of the program. And, and that's fine. It's like an index, if you like. Uh, what I don't like is when some applications, they try and stuff every function they can, every major function in the application on that menu, forcing you to go top left all the time. So I think it can be abused, but on the whole, I, I don't mind it at all. Uh, it's interesting because, I mean, I agree absolutely with that. It's about making choices that aren't user hostile. Um, part of the reason I bring this up is there's quite a bit of user testing now that says people don't use the burger menus very much or they get confused by them. Um, and actually, you can improve the kind of use of them by instead of having three lines, as the Berg menu tradition is, you can actually have a menu button. But it does tend to spoil designs and other people, particularly kind of people who are thinking purely about the visual design, don't like it. Um, it's also why you've seen so many apps kind of switch to having the nav bar at the bottom or at least bringing it back or making that the primary navigation function. And honestly, I, I think in a lot of cases, that still makes the most sense. And obviously, that's not an element we see on Windows 10 Mobile in the same way that you do on iOS and Android. And so kind of it, it's interesting to make that distinction, um, at least with regard to kind of the overall interface on on Windows 10 Mobile. But you, you can't really get away from the fact that um, when you've got more than four or five items, actually they make a lot of sense. I guess the argument then comes back for, a, particularly from a user experience point of view, is if you can't des you know describe the functions of your application in, in kind of five areas then you you've got a problem and i will agree with you that um the very best apps tend to have their navigation in line in some way and actually as we're talking about uh, this third party uh, vimeo client actually it it does make sensible uses of uh, tabs in to kind of have that almost um different sections almost hierarchical use of nav navigation to switch very quickly and pivot between things because actually what's interesting, and I think this applies to a lot of content apps and the AAWP one is no exception, when you have a very content-rich application, actually designing an easy-to-use navigation that supports multiple different user journeys or route through the app becomes increasingly difficult because there is now an expectation that apps offer both an intuitive but also kind of fully featured uh, experience. And the way you move and navigate through an app is very much part of that. And particularly when you start thinking about the navigation stack and how you move back through an app or forward through an app or related articles or related videos in this case. Um, and it does seem that uh, this Vime uh, app has done a pretty good job of thinking about that, partly by using some of the patterns from the uh, Vimeo website itself. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's incredibly impressive as a UWP app, especially when it appears to be completely bug-free as well. Yeah, um, it's, it's very interesting. It's by the same developers as Awesome Tube, which is possibly one of the the best YouTube clients. And of course, there are similarities, I'm sure, in the underlying code. But just well done to them. Are you a big 
sort of Vimeo user, Rafe? Are you aware of the site? Do you do you, do you appreciate I, the content? I, I use it a little bit. I mean, I think I'm probably like a lot of other people in that if there's a specific bit of content I want to watch, I don't really care which site it sits on. Um, I have been referred to more Vimeo content by family and friends recently, or it feels like that way in the last six months. Um, I think partly because they've concentrated a lot on kind of having high quality documentary content. I mean, I guess that's what Vimeo is kind of best known for. Yeah. Um, probably like most people, though, I don't feel really the need for an app. I mean, obviously, give it a go because I, I would recommend it. Um, because like YouTube, actually, it's very usable through the uh, mobile website or just the website itself. Um, but it is interesting, I think, particularly if you're starting to interact with video a bit more, it probably does make sense to to use the app. And I guess it's the old argument about, you know, when does a app become worth using? Well, it's probably a frequency argument a lot of the time. Um, it, it's either got to provide a superior experience in some way, and that might be offline usage, or it might be, you know, remembering your account information. But a lot of the time, of course, um, we talked about this when we talked about uh, progressive web apps, it's getting easier for websites to do that as well. Maybe not always quite so effectively, so for me, it actually often sometimes comes back to the frequency argument. And sometimes you know, apps, um, regardless of whether you pin a PWA or install an app, it's just quick, easy access. Um, and I do find that increasingly you do still find that apps have that little added extra. It's that moment of user delight, yeah. whether it's something like, you know, one of the native payment methods or kind of just fitting in with the way you use your phone. And I think uh, actually this, Vimeo app is is kind of a perfect example. Of course, you can use the website, but it's quicker using this, and it sort of has some familiar familiarity with the UI you're used to in so many other Windows 10 mobile apps, and therefore, yeah. it's just quicker to move through it. And you know, you can't you can't really beat speed. Yeah, absolutely. Also, um, one thing that really annoys me about the World Wide Web in general and and video <laughs> sites and as well is that everything's white background so for example you're flicking between videos on youtube or vimeo or wherever and you're alternating between videos which tend to be really rich and saturated colors and moody and atmospheric and then the moment you're out of the video you're into a blinding white background if you're watching in the evening it's really taxing on the eyes whereas um, being mm. having a proper client with a dark theme means that your eyes can naturally soak in the the the, the the lit pixels on the screen and you're never blinded by horrible white so that's part of my part of my dislike of white themes in general but especially for um, video and social sites also Rafe you'll note from my review that uh, um, Vime for Vimeo also has that uh, offline mode where you can download videos for offline watching which is really important of course you can't do that uh, using the mobile yeah. website that, that's good because I haven't quite spotted that but yeah there's a perfect example of, of where it makes sense because I don't know about you, Steve, but I tend to have a collection of a, a few videos that I like and sometimes will re-watch, um, or it's more a case of downloading to then be able to show friends and family. Yeah. Um, and that's something that's obviously, you know, you can use bookmarks and things, but it's not quite as convenient, and that tends to, you know, mess up your bookmark list anyway. So having some videos stored down and you, obviously then you don't necessarily need to have a 4G or Wi-Fi connection, which can be handy because a lot of the time you have that spare bit of time is... I know you're driving somewhere or you're down the pub and the signal's a bit iffy and you really don't want to have to worry about that sort of thing. So yeah. uh, it's a great extra feature. I'll be sure to use that. Yeah, and of course, everything in terms of your favourites and your libraries, this everything synced through your Vimeo account. It's all done through the official uh, Vimeo APIs. So yeah, well done to the developers. 
and I shall watch out for more stuff from you. Um, moving on, moving on, Rafe. Um, I have done another feature, mirroring what I did with the Idol Four Pro a week ago. Um, we and I think uh, you, you missed that because Steve Heinrich was on last week's podcast. But essentially, the Lumia eight thirty, um, nine thirty, fifteen twenty, etc., etc., um, they're now also covered by a tutorial taking. And Microsoft be damned, taking these phones right up to full creators update, branch 1709 of Windows 10. And the the, the, the short summary, Rafe, is that Microsoft um, disabled uh, in the, the Insiders program, taking you from the anniversary update up to future builds. I think Microsoft was just simplifying the, the builds and the server space at their own end. But the, the upshot, of course, is that the Idle 4 Pro, which was stuck on anniversary update, and of course... These are classic Lumias, 735, 830, 930, all absolutely stuck officially on anniversary update. Uh, unless you happen to you know, be on the Insiders program late last year, in which case you could have jumped them up. But if, assuming that you've done the Windows device recovery tool or you just haven't bothered and left it on the official version, then you've got no way forward, no way to appreciate all the new updates that are coming along, the support until spring 2019, etc., etc., unless you go through what I've gone through here. And the tutorial takes you through something slightly geeky a thing called interop tools which basically just is a registry editor for windows 10 mobile um you go through the steps i've given there hopefully i've made everything as crystal clear and uh, a few steps in you'll be able to edit three registry keys which basically turn your phone into thinking it's uh, or letting windows uh, servers think that it's a lumia 950xl at which point you get all the updates so you let, let the updates flood in you upgrade your lumia 930 or whatever classic lumia to four creators update step by step once you're there of course you can um, revert the registry entries and uh, pretend to be a lumia 930 or whatever again and just to make sure that nothing goes untoward but once you're on those up recent more recent branches you're yeah you've got full support you're good to go into another year year a year and a half or so which i think is excellent news for classic lumias it is and i think they're some among some of the nicest devices uh, particularly the 1520 and the 830 i think both of us have said it, those are among our our favorite devices i mean uh, it's probably worth saying steve that the usual warnings apply here um you it, it's not a particularly difficult process um if you're you know computer literate um but we probably should say that you know it's not officially supported this is probably most yeah. certainly going to break any warranty or anything like that that you have and um we can't obviously guarantee that there are no problems with doing this um i mean because the obvious thing here is although you can register it uh, change the registry and pretend it's a different type of phone the hardware is different so we don't know if there's kind of tuning for the individual devices around things like battery life or you know particular hardware configuration the evidence is such uh, thus far that actually doesn't seem to have too much of an impact in the yeah. battery life and things like that seem to be fine but it's not 100 percent uh guaranteed <laughs> but i think it's it's probably worth the risk i mean particularly if it's a an older device and i suspect a lot of people who are going to try this out it's probably not a a primary device one of these older ones um the other thing i want to say i, I just think it's kind of remarkable that hardware that you know is actually getting i mean for all intents and purposes in the smartphone world, quite long in the tooth and running relatively old-fashioned hardware and processors and all of that actually is able to run these pretty seamlessly. And um, I think if you if you try this out, it feels you know just as snappy as uh, it does on some of the more modern devices. Maybe that's a <laughs> slightly generous description, but certainly I think it gives the phones a new lease of life and we talked to you know a couple of podcasts ago about how you would start to see apps that kind of require 
the most recent version of the software because yeah. you know that's the way um, development was moving. And so it kind of answers that question quite nicely for these older devices. Um, and it, it always amazes me how when you get kind of a platform winding down, the kind of the community that pops up to support and allow you to do these kind of things. And you know, obviously Steve's tutorial is an example of this. Um, is is pretty amazing, uh, but it also talks to the kind of the flexibility and just how smartphones have come on, that the hardware is sort of somewhat commoditized and the software will just work on it. Um, and it also it just goes to show that Microsoft actually have something that's still viable on, on the older devices. So it does make me wonder why they switched off. I suspect the reason for it is there just aren't enough people using it to justify continue doing the testing as you suggested it's the number of builds and things like that it's just it's hard to go yeah it's worth doing it when it's a relatively small number of people but if you want to take it and try it out you absolutely can um but yeah um caveats and warnings apply i think yeah although it is actually very hard to brick a, a windows phone a windows <laughs> to a mobile phone I, I should never say never but uh, the windows device recovery tool has all sorts of modes I mean, the the obvious one is you plug in your phone into your PC and it recognises it straight away. Good, you you know whatever state it was in, you can then flash it uh, with, with the official base build for that model, which is usually going back quite a long way. <laughs> but there's also the, the so-called is it, is it dead USB model whereby it, your yeah. phone isn't recognised, but the, the the utility talks you into holding down the couple of buttons, putting the device in a direct flashing mode. You then plug it in and it just flashes it directly anyway. No need for a working OS at all. So. Um, I have yet to, despite all of the work I've done over the last, what was it, seven or eight years, Rafe, not, not once have I bricked a Lumia or a Windows phone in any way, or even been close to bricking it. And comp compared to some of the um, problems people have had in the Android world trying to, trying to do similarly geeky things, I think actually that that's a testament to how robust these phones are in terms of their software engineering, and also how well well designed this what was originally the Nokia um, device recovery tool, now the, the, the Microsoft one, how well that was written and how how robustly it handles people doing silly things yet yeah, you right back right back to square one absolutely and i think you know this probably speaks to microsoft's experience in putting an operating system together and, you know they rightly get a lot of criticism but they've also got some very smart people for them you know working out how to sort of do the low level stuff and actually the reality here is that even when you're doing the kind of update that we're we're talking about is you're not really touching stuff down at the lower level uh, bootloader, but Microsoft has designed that to be, you know, very easy to recover from with the various tools and credit to them for making those available. Because as you say, it's entirely possible to brick an Android phone relatively easy, particularly if you're using, if I say, some of the slightly unorthodox methods for getting old firmware or new firmware onto <laughs> a device before it's been released. And, you know, um, Actually, some companies are better than others because some actually very deliberately open up all of that kind of thing. Um, but I would say, yes, that I, I don't think I've managed to ever completely brick any device I've owned, but I have had to try and recover friends' Android devices without much success. Um, so I think it's easier to do that. And then, of course, you will also hear uh, horror stories about the iPhone when updates have gone wrong. Um, and while I've definitely seen updates go wrong on Windows devices, They've always been recoverable, um, as you say, using the tools that are available and then work the next time. Um, so a little bit of patience, you can pretty much always guarantee you'll be able to get your device back into some sort of working shape. 
Absolutely, and, and the the backup and restore process, which for on Windows 8.1 wasn't too bad, got better with the first releases Windows Absolutely. 10 Mobile. Mm. It, with the very latest releases, it really is top-notch, and you can now, as long as you've got a full working backup and plenty of time, because let's face it, reinstalling whatever it is, 150 third-party apps in many people's cases, that will take a few hours. As long as you've got a bit of patience, you can get something like something like 95% of your phone back, just with, with almost no interaction whatsoever. An awful lot of UWP apps actually restore your preferences, your settings, even your login status in some applications case. Um, so it's really quite impressive. It's not as good as on the iPhone, iOS. I think Apple had it nailed, um, they, and they're kind of the gold standard. But I think I would put Windows 10 Mobile as kind of the silver standard alongside perhaps some of the Google Pixel devices uh, and everything else below, below. But certainly, yeah, there's nothing to be feared as long as you've got a good backup. So that'll be settings, update and, secu- update and security, backups, and then tap on backup options. And you can check then when your last full backup was. But as long as you've done that, you are good to go because whatever you do to your phone, as long as you can bring it up to a recent version of Windows 10 Mobile, you can get all your stuff back or nearly all your stuff, stuff back without any extra aggravation. Um, one other application, one at UWP app, Animotica Rave. Just have a look at some of the screenshots for this. It's kind of bizarre in that the front end is kind of HTML-ish. Um, but beyond that, there's a surprising amount of video functionality. And I was really surprised that it was actually robust and did all of the video editing, annotation, um, effect stuff I wanted with, with no crashes. Um, and it just, just worked. And I, something I'd h- highly recommend to people, give a try out if they've perhaps got, you know, two gig or three gig of RAM. Oh, it's interesting. I haven't seen or tried this application, so I'm just looking through the screenshots. And you're right, there is this slightly weird interface, which, I mean, it stands out more because we're so used to UWP apps having a, a fairly standard look and feel. <laughs> um, I'm assuming that it is still a, a native app and it's still doing things uh, locally rather than kind of using yeah, web tricks yeah. in, in the background. And you can probably see that from actually if you look through it, some of the uh, kind of UI elements. It's just the way it's been uh, Put together, I think sometimes it's a, you know, uh, if a developer's focusing more on functionality than kind of standard design, it's not it's not unattractive. It, it works, um, and yeah, it, when you think uh, in the early days of smartphones, Steve, you know, video editors um, were quite exotic and were very limited in their functionality, and quite often they were you know, quite limited in the amount of video they can handle, and certainly the functionality. It's kind of amazes me that you can do uh, so much. Um, and, you know, particularly from, you know, a third party application, you know, you actually have a few choices now. So um, I'll have to give this one a go. Yeah, it's actually not unknown to do this kind of a front end trick. I've got my favorite video editing suite and media suite on the PC is the Nero um, suite. Mm-hmm. And that uses a similar kind of a front end graphical menu. And you just pick pick the task you want. And it then under the hood, behind the scenes, gathers the various editing modules you need and produces, puts up the right um, interface for that particular task. And I think the same idea is here. The, 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 the developer has clearly got all these different modules, these different UI elements, these different functions, routines. And he thinks, well, how on earth can I um, launch the user into the right bit to do the right task? I know I'll just have a front end with eight or nine different common things people might want to do with video, and I'll just you know knock this up in HTML, and that can link that can deep link into the appropriate uh, yeah. interface for that task. So it kind of makes sense. It just looks a bit odd. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for that for something like video, where most of the time people are just going to be wanting to do a standard task. Anyone who's used something like uh, Adobe Premiere or one of the kind of professional 
video editing applications might be slightly flummoxed <laughs> by you know the kind of level of simplicity but of course a lot of the time people are just looking to do a quick trim on the video maybe add some text or a bit of music or you know, some transitions or just annotations so that they can then share it with their friends you know post it to social media whatever and of course you know that you don't want a fully featured application because it can honestly it can take a while to work things out uh, as soon as you're trying to start to do more impressive stuff, I don't know, like stabilization or something, you probably are going to be uh, looking at a more fully featured application, probably, frankly, taking it up to a desktop PC anyway. Uh, but, yeah, it's interesting because that, that phenomenon of kind of doing a, a very constrained set of tasks might feel quite limiting, but probably serves 95% plus of the use cases for the majority of users. Lumia footage needing stabilization, Rafe. That's heresy. This got perfectly oh, no. good OIS and Windows 10 digital stabilization <laughs> on top. You don't need extra stabilization in the editor. Goodness sake. Anyway. Well, well sometimes you do when you've got your, your, your me and you're trying to hold a phone with one hand. And then anyway, um, I'll, I'll just be quiet now and apologize for Steve for not using OIS properly. <laughs> and now you were at Mobile World Congress uh, last week, Rafe. And I don't really want to take up too much of the podcast because I doubt there were any and new Windows 10 mobile handsets launched, and probably not that much that was directly relevant. But you care to do a kind of a five-minute overview and summary of what your 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 takeaway for how the show felt to you? Okay, yeah. I mean, the obvious question is: Was there anything relating to Windows 10 mobile? Not that I saw, and I'm not sure I saw a single Windows 10 mobile handset on the show floor. You know, the obvious booth like uh, Alcatel, for example, didn't have anything. And some of the others have moved away, you know, HP, for example, that we've had in, in recent years. Uh, and actually, Microsoft didn't have a particularly big presence. They did uh, have an area in the kind of startup zone four years from now, but that was kind of a local effort rather than kind of global Microsoft. And so that's kind of indicative, I guess, of the kind of philosophy and attitude towards mobile for Microsoft now. Um, obviously, there's still the prospect that that might change in the future uh, with the kind of uh, much rumoured and much talked about Surface Phone, but you know nothing of that there. But where Windows was demonstrated was on the kind of transformer type devices, uh, laptops and tablets, and uh, Huawei announced uh, a number of those. Um, but I think probably the pick for me was seeing for the first time in person some of the Windows ARM laptops, which have you know amazing battery life. So Qualcomm, for example, had on their stand a a Windows laptop that had been running with the screen on and doing a few things for 22 hours. And we've, we talked about this when they kind of first got announced. Yeah. Um, you know, there's an interesting thing here because there are obviously some some limitations, but it feels like it's come a long way from uh, the Lumia 2520 and other of those kind of basic Windows on ARM devices that they had first time round. So that caught my imagination and I'll you know, I, I'm kind of quite tempted to try one of those because actually battery life is still a big thing, particularly yeah. on tablets and uh, and laptops. And, you know, these devices look like they might be quite competitively priced as well. Uh, other than that, as I say, uh, Microsoft pretty low key at the show, although it's worth saying that there were a few bits and pieces around um, some of the kind of VR headsets and things like that. But all in all, you, you had to be looking uh, quite closely in terms of other things at MWC, it's a show that's increasingly become about more than just handsets. And so in terms of things that caught my attention and were interesting is kind of the maturity of some of the IoT offerings, particularly the way they're being used uh, in industrial manufacturing, in smart cities. Um, 
there are always companies demonstrating different versions of that. But a lot of the time, the whole point is these things are kind of invisible to the end user, um, partly because they're being used in, by companies, partly because they're sort of just embedded in the city. And so whether it's, you know, streetlights that have a NBIOT connection or, you know, a tracker object that has LTM in it, those are both kind of uh, low power, wide area networks. Um, some of that's coming in with uh, 5G. The reason those are interesting is how you go from connecting kind of billions of devices, which is what we've got at the moment, to sort of tens of billions. And, you know, uh, Arm was even talking about getting towards the point where we have a trillion connected devices, which was a bit mind blowing. <laughs> but really what those, those things do is, you know, you have uh, devices that can be connected using low power um, with kind of obviously if it's on battery life, they can have a very long battery life up to five years. Uh, and at low cost. So rather than kind of effectively sticking a phone on to something, which has been the traditional approach with IoT, you can lose these low power, wide area network uh, type connections to maybe do it for a handful of dollars per year, which means obviously you can connect many more things. That might be something as uh, simple as a rubbish bin. It might be there was a demo of uh, kind of laundromats and it's sort of by having all the washing machines in the laundromat connected, you can tell when they go wrong. You can probably predict when they go wrong. You can see utilization. So you can run a, a change of laundromats using maybe a couple of staff rather than 10 people. So that kind of automation, smartness, intelligence. Uh, one of the things that caught my attention was actually a demo of uh, a new Samsung SmartThings tracker, and it's a presence sensor. Um, those have traditionally been based on Zigbee um, so that when you walk into the house, it knows your smart home, knows you've arrived. Actually, this was having an MBIOT connection, which means it didn't depend on being connected to the home Wi-Fi via, via Zigbee. And so it's also the equivalent of those tile trackers, which are the Bluetooth low energy trackers, which you can use to kind of keep track of your luggage or your handbag or whatever it happens to be. But because they've got independent connectivity, it doesn't rely on your smartphone, doesn't rely on Wi-Fi. It will work all the time and can be pretty much worldwide. And that's really useful from a kind of presence sensor point of view because it just is a lot more robust so loads of those kind of things lots of automotive lots of health that's all moved on and maybe we'll talk about it a bit in future podcasts but thinking about the other handsets i mean the one thing is that the show there aren't so many big announcements uh not just this time around i think it's been happening for the last few years you know in its prime you would see basically a big handset announcement from every manufacturer and a lot of the times there were multiple devices being announced I mean, i can remember nokia announcing three symbian phones in one go um and you'd often see others announcing too so you know i'd, I'd be running around the show trying to photograph 10 plus different symbian devices at its peak and you know with android that got even more crazy this time around samsung announced the s9 and the s9 plus yeah, very impressive high-end Android devices. I think you could argue they're the most important Android devices. They're kind of the flagships that will sell in significant numbers. Really, the Android world's equivalent to the iPhone. Yeah. Um, but also lots of other Android bits and pieces. I'd probably talk about two things, which is kind of Android Go, which is a version of Android which is intended for lower-cost uh, devices, which have kind of fewer resources. I mean, by less memory, lower CPU, um, Google announced it last year at Google I.O., but these are the first time the device has been available in public. So the Nokia One's an example of this, as is uh, some of the Alcatel devices. But actually, there were quite a few manufacturers showing off those devices. And 
it just makes Android more usable, I would say, on the sub $100 price point. And it does that by partly having some kind of custom code in it, but also having Go-specific versions of certain Android applications, which are smaller in size and use uh, less data. So it's interesting to kind of see that divergence. We've kind of assumed that one size fits all for smartphone operating system, but I think there's an implicit acknowledgement there from Google that you have to have kind of a not a cut down version but one that's maybe optimized for those lower end devices yeah. um of the devices i saw the nokia one um and it really is the nokia one would probably be the pick of them and that probably also gives me an opportunity to talk about some of the other nokia devices like uh the nokia 7 which was an android um one device and in though that sense it's kind of pure android with no uh skin or anything put on the top it's Android as Google intended it, you might say. And uh, Nokia, or I guess I should call it HMD, have been doing a very good job of creating, I think, quite attractive and desirable off-the-shelf Android device. And I don't mean that to be a negative at all. Um, They've certainly thought about the design, they've thought about the packaging, um, and they're doing some things that I think you could describe as custom hardware, but probably doesn't quite match up to the efforts of something like Samsung or Huawei, um, which you can announce their P30 device in due course. So, you know, you don't see quite the same camera tricks. Nonetheless, because, you know, that hardware has become so commoditized, and frankly, a lot of the things that the other manufacturers are doing feel a bit gimmicky, um, you can get tremendous value and the kind of the traditional Nokia design and attitude out of those devices. So they definitely caught my attention. Um, I guess everyone talked about the return of the Nokia 8110, which was a a feature phone similar to the Matrix phone. Uh, The yellow banana phone was kind of the one that was pictured all around the world. Yeah, great. They they managed to steal the headlines again. Uh, Very clever bit of marketing. But actually, there was a kind of more intriguing thing for me there, which is almost a resurgence in feature phones. Um, And what was most interesting about the 8110 from a kind of geeky tech point of view is that it was running kind of uh, something called Smarter OS, which itself is based on Kai OS. And there were a couple of other feature phones also running on that. And that eventually devolves back to Firefox OS, which everyone sort of treated as a bit of a joke back when it was announced in, I think, 2015. But it's interesting that its its time has come back again and obviously based on a Linux kernel. And you can do a lot of things with it. And you know the apps that run on top of it give you a pretty rich feature phone experience. But the most interesting thing about it is they are 4G devices, um, and by being based on that kind of Firefox OS, that or that ancestry at least, it can do uh, 4G. That's interesting because, of course, operators at some point have to think about switching off 2G and 3G networks, yet they still want to support feature phones because there's still a significant number of them being sold. I mean, in some markets, feature phones are still outselling uh, smartphones, and even in kind of the Western markets, there is a a bunch of refuseniks who don't want to go to smartphones or people buying them as you know secondary devices because of course the interesting thing is the nokia 8110 was talked about of having kind of 30 days standby time on, on battery life so you know it is interesting to me that that feature phone thing has come back and there was always kind of assumption i guess it wasn't ever completely crystal clear that everyone was going to have a smartphone but we hadn't really thought about the fact that feature phones would still be a thing and so uh, for me, that was kind of the surprise of the show, 4G specifically, uh, feature phones. And yes, of course, there were, you know, the usual surprises uh, popping up from the point of view of startups 
if I had to pick out a couple of categories, I'd say indoor navigation looks like it's going to uh, come up again. And there's various ways of doing it, that thanks to the sensors in the phones and the ability uh, to collect data, both from accelerometers and magnetometers, um, and the way you can do mapping with that. That, and I would say intelligence within the camera. And it's something we've talked a lot about on the podcast. And whether it's the LG AI cam or Bixby in the Samsung S9, um, you know, or similar to kind of uh, Bing Vision as well, Google Lens, uh, all of those are adding smartness to the camera and effectively the camera becoming an interface and an input mechanism. And, you know, I would say, repeat the prediction I made a little while ago and say, you know, the camera will be used as much to get information into the phone and then do something with it as it will be to take pictures. And, you know, Samsung was showing off the ability to recognize food, and that was kind of a computer vision trick. LG was showing how it could recognize the objects in the camera and then show interesting information about that. Google Lens does a similar thing, and actually Google Lens is now available kind of via Google Photos for select Android devices. And so uh, if you wanted to call it the AI camera, you could, but actually to me it's more about using computer vision to work out what the camera is seeing and then do interesting things on top of that and trigger certain actions. And so what it means is it becomes an input mechanism. It's not a surprising trend. Obviously, Snapchat and Instagram and Facebook have been doing that for a while with their camera applications. But what I do think is different here is it's going into the native camera application or the default camera application. So you don't have to think about using a specific app to do a certain trick it just works in the camera. And so the camera, the default camera application as the new interface is the thing I would watch, you know, throughout 2018 and into 2019. So there you go. A bit more than five minutes, but quick <laughs> summary of MWC. Okay, great summary. And believe it or not, Rafe did all of that without notes. That was just off the top of his head. So uh, impressive. Um, just on the subject of the Android Go sub $100 phones, Rafe, you could even argue that Google and Android have caught up with where Symbian was in 2009 and Windows <laughs> Phone was in 2013. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, there's been cheap Android phones available for a while now. They just haven't been a very good experience. And we talked about this, I think, endlessly when talking about Symbian devices and about Windows Phone. You know, Nokia at the time wanted to go for volume. And so it put a massive amount of emphasis on making cheap smartphones available and was tremendously successful with things like the Nokia 5230 uh, and the Lumia 5XX and 6XX series. Um, I think it almost did that at the cost of innovating around the high end. And it's one of the things, mistakes I think they yeah. made. And I probably would say that as a person most interested in high end phones. Um, the fact that Google's having to do this, I think, is almost acknowledgement of the fact that they probably didn't pay enough attention to the lower end uh, phones. And anyone who's used you know, one of these $50 Android handsets will now how awful the experience is. And frankly, it's probably one of the reasons feature phones have managed to survive. So I'll be kind of interested to try out one of these Android Go phones to see, you know, is it actually practical? Um, I suspect it's going to be a case of if you stick to the kind of default preloaded applications, it will be fine. If you start trying to experiment with some of the third-party applications that push things a bit more or, you know, end up being really big when you download them, that will be kind of a less uh, pleasant experience. But it's interesting that, you know, uh, Facebook itself has kind of been experimenting with uh, what I'd describe as kind of lighter versions of its applications. And a lot of the time it's just about the size of the app and sometimes it's about the things it can do, but also the data consumption. I mean, just because we're used to kind of 
unlimited or near unlimited uh, data tariffs. That's not true for everybody. And there really is a cost to data. And in some markets, it's still relatively expensive, particularly when you compare it against the kind of cost of living overall. So uh, I'm not sure we'll see many of those devices in the UK and the US and Europe. But I think they are going to be pretty important in some of the uh, Asian and African markets. Yeah, and there's one extra factor with Android Go, if I've understood it right, is that uh, Google are in charge of uh, supplying the OS updates. And between that That's and right. Project Treble, which they're applying to the, the high-end flagships coming out over the next year or so, I mean, G- Google and Android, are the whole scene is notoriously fragmented. And I think Google is getting very, very frustrated that it can't uh, get the latest security updates and patches and, and OS functions on the majority of Android handsets out there. We talk in on this podcast often how actually very fortunate Windows 10 Mobile is that the the updates, the OS updates, the security patches, the the browser kernel fixes, they're all pushed out as over-the-air updates every single month to just about every Windows 10 Mobile handset out there, regardless of branch. So, I mean, the iPhone, again, is the gold standard. I would say that Windows 10 Mobile is getting up there, maybe the silver standard. And again, Android was really falling behind. But this new initiative, together with Project Treble, I think sees Google just starting to take the bull by the horns and starting to compete in terms of updates with the other two platforms. Agreed. I mean, it's interesting. I think Google and Android got into that position because of its uh, philosophy and wanting to be open to as many manufacturers and sort of hardware types as possible. And clearly, Apple has an advantage in being kind of controlling in its ecosystem. And frankly, Microsoft was able to do that as well, partly because um, it decided to, and partly, <laughs> you probably could argue, because it just had fewer hardware partners which it had to deal with. Um, you're right, Android absolutely needs to do it. We've talked about it. And it's really interesting to note you have a very different Android experience depending on what kind of device you go after with, you know, Pixel being arguably the best experience. But, of course, that's sold in relatively small numbers. I mean, one of the interesting things that came out recently, this Nokia device or the HMD devices kind of outsold Pixel and outsold HTC and a couple of other big name manufacturers just because, you know, they had a wider variety of devices available. It was in more markets. They sorted out the distribution channel and kind of that was the power of the Nokia name and the Nokia brand. Um, But also I think, I I don't want to be too critical because this sounds like a a bit grumpy, but (laughs) Google has made these initiatives before in terms of trying to get software updates and encourage manufacturers to do the right thing. And, you know, they have been various versions of Android, which have tried to target the low-end devices or have tried to push out updates more often. Now, the the most recent initiatives do feel like they have a little bit more momentum behind them. But Google is a bit notorious for doing things and then abandoning them. And I'm not suggesting it's going to do the same, but its track record isn't great in this department. And ultimately, it does have a relatively lack of leverage i will say over some of these manufacturers and while it may be able to fix it for some devices it's not going to stop there being you know crap cheap android devices available on the market Um, and there's obviously such a huge install base as well that's that's not going to get fixed so i think android's reputation for kind of vulnerabilities and security holes is going to be maintained in, in, in some ways it feels unfair because it's you know it's become so ubiquitous now and people go, oh it's not that big a problem and in, in many ways it's not but it's really not the situation you want to be in with the kind of computer that's sitting in everyone's pocket because you know they're described as vulnerabilities and security holes for a reason 
Um, so I absolutely hope that kind of the, the, the new initiatives do help solve that. But um, I definitely detect a degree, degree of skepticism that, um, you know, the manufacturers will jump on anything that they think will sell the devices and sort of make them look good. But there's no guarantee that lasts in the longer term, particularly if Google loses interest or the manufacturers don't see it helping the sales of the devices. And I think the unfortunate thing is at the low end in particular, it's still going to be about price. And I do wonder if kind of some of the extra requirements around these um, Android Go devices are onerous enough just to add a little bit of cost to the device. And even if it's only, you know, $5, that could be the difference between a sale and, and not getting a sale. So we'll see, you know, it's the right idea, but uh, we'll have to see how it works out in practice. Yeah, talking of Android, we did promise two podcasts ago, Rafe, that to you and I would debate Windows 10 Mobile yes. versus Android and, and the pros and cons, but we've completely run out of time, so we're going to have to defer that yet again. I do apologise, gentle listener, but hopefully we've given you enough other topics in this podcast, but that will come at some point. I won't forget about it. And also on the subject of Android, Rafe, I've got a Galaxy S9 arriving hopefully here tomorrow as we record this. And of course, what everyone's after is the, uh, the big shootout. The shootout. <laughs> Lumia 950XL versus Galaxy S9. And I'm looking forward to that too. Is that The S9 looks to have a stonking camera. Maybe not in terms of the sheer optics and physics, but there's so much digital smarts going on now behind the scenes that uh, I think it's becoming very clear that uh, raw, raw hardware, raw physics is actually being matched now by the combination of good optics and very, very high computer power. But all of that's to come on the site in the next uh, week or so, of course. Uh, in the meantime, I shall say goodbye, and I'll let Rafe do the sign-off. Oh, well, we look forward to seeing that Samsung shootout. And I agree, actually, a lot of the value and the good things in cameras now is not actually coming from the raw performance. It's all the things that you can do with it. And actually, that just reinforces the remark I was making about the camera as an interface. The other thing we'll also promise to talk about in a future podcast is the uh, uh, Gemini from Planet Computing. It is something I briefly saw at MWC, having seen it at CES, and I'm hoping actually to get my hands on one uh, very soon indeed. It's kind of, for those that don't know, it's the Cyan 5MX-like device, but running, uh, well, Android also can boot into uh, various Linux uh, distributions, as well as Postmarket, which is kind of a Linux distribution running the Hilden um, UI, which is actually quite exciting. And I did see it running that, and I also saw it running... Um, uh, Selfish. Selfish, thank you. Yes, from Yola. Uh, so that's going to be interesting to talk about in a, a future podcast, just because I think it will appeal to quite a few listeners to this podcast, and there's a certain amount of uh, geek credential on the line there. So <laughs> we'll make sure we cover that in a future podcast as well. But if you want a taste of what that's about... Uh, Steve actually has a great video on the website where he goes through some of the Gemini features and particularly notes its attributes as a device for kind of business users and for productivity. So check that out as well. Other than that, I will sign off and say thank you, everybody, to listening. Thank you for Steve for corralling me into the podcast and doing his usual fantastic job on creating content. And I will say goodbye to all the listeners and ask you to please tune in next time. Bye.